I see a mug filled with Starbucks coffee from a K-cup. In front of me, there's a microphone, and from the microphone runs an extension cord. I see plastic, ceramic, rubber. I see concrete, wood, and there's a clock. And over there is a keyboard, and over here is a piano, and on the stage, there's lots of carpet. I am surrounded by material substances, matter, otherwise known as stuff. Stuff that's shaped into circles, squares, spheres, rectangles. There are angles, directions, and colors, and textures. And don't even get me started on temperatures. It's a bit cold outside this morning, April 10th, 2020. And it's a little too warm in here, and I'm still in my fleece jacket. And I don't even have time to talk about the fire and friction and the energy and metal that got me to the church building today. But what I want to say is that we live in a material world. We live in a physical world, and it's a good thing. And the physical world is just as real as the spiritual world. And the spiritual world is just as real as the physical. Sometimes you may hear somebody say that the spiritual world is more real than the physical. Well, that's an absurdity. It's not logical. Something may be temporal and something may be eternal, but they are both just as real. And Paul tells us that Christ, preeminent over all things, created both the visible and the invisible. And today on Good Friday, we celebrate the death of a man who was a carpenter, and his followers were fishermen, and they were all earthy. The carpenter dealt in wood, hammers, chisels, pounding, shaving, and shaping. The fishermen dealt with sand and storms and stink and animals. The carpenter was crucified, and the fishermen changed the world. What I'm talking about is the teaching called the Incarnation. This is the teaching that says that God became flesh. He took on flesh. God was enfleshed in human nature. And there have been a lot of debates and discussions about how that could happen and what that means and how do you define it. But I think the biblical story is pretty straightforward. God became flesh. It was a real body that was killed. And it was a real body that was raised. And in order to have a real body raised, you had to have a real body. And so Christ came and God died for us in human flesh. The church council met in AD 451 and met and wrangled for about a month and came up with the Chalcedonian definition of the incarnation of Christ. They met in the city of Chalcedon. I won't read the whole statement, but let me read a part of it to you. Remember, this is from AD 451. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body. That means he has a rational soul, just like we do consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to manhood. Everything that God has and is, Jesus is. Everything that mankind has and is, Jesus is. In all things like unto us without sin, 
begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary. And Paul puts it this way in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And there you have it. You have the eternal son of God being born of a woman. And there is the incarnation. Athanasius, who was born around AD 298 and was an early teacher in the church, wrote a book called On the Incarnation. He said, you must understand why it is that the word of the Father, so great and high, has been made manifest in bodily form. He has not assumed a body as proper to his own nature, far from it. For as the word, he is without a body. He has been manifested in a human body for this reason only, out of the love and goodness of his Father, for the salvation of us men. We will begin then with the creation of the world and with God its maker, for the first fact that you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the selfsame word who made it in the beginning. John, his follower, tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if anything can be called a made thing, anything that's created, it was created by the Word. So the Word precedes everything that's created, so the Word himself is not created, he is God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus had a real physical body. He didn't just seem to be human, he was human. He had a heart, lungs, and liver, and a pancreas. He took up space, he breathed air, he weighed something. He ate and drank and slept. He even spat and made mud from it. He had a nervous system that felt every lash, that split his skin and shed his blood the shooting pain from every pound of the hammers that drove spikes through his skin and bones and ligaments. He felt the sun burn and his mouth parched, and he cried out to God through dry vocal cords. So the eternal Son of God that we might describe as the second person of the Trinity, who had neither beginning nor end, he's eternal and infinite, deity, John tells us that he took on flesh, he became human, which is probably the greatest miracle, even greater than the entire creation itself, and even greater than the resurrection, is how God became man. This is the Christian teaching throughout the ages, and those that say he didn't have a human body, really, that he only seemed, he was a spirit that seemed to have a human body, they are against him. And they're against everything that Christianity teaches. So when we see God become flesh, we see Jesus born of the Virgin Mary, we see him live his life and die on the cross, we are watching the renewal of creation. We are watching the death throes of an old world and the birth pangs of a new world. 
and not only just a new world, but a new humanity, as we'll see in the resurrection. But why would he do that? Why would he take on the ability to suffer? Why would he take on the ability to feel pain and to die? The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. So he's talking about us. We have flesh and blood. We're human. We're vulnerable. We're, we're finite. And we can suffer. He himself likewise shared the same. So he's talking about Christ. Christ came and shared in flesh and blood, shared in that same He shared in that same finite existence, he shared in that same vulnerability, and he shared in that same ability to die. Why? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. So he is trying to destroy evil and its consequences. So he took on human nature to die for us, to save us from our sins, to save us from death, to save us from hell. If you remember, when he was on the cross, he was thinking of other people, and one of the thieves asked him, he said, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, yeah, that is heaven. So Jesus took this man to heaven that day. Not only did he save us from sin, death, and hell, he also saved us from the law. Going back to Galatians 4, 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was saving us from the law of Moses and bringing in a new spirit. Why? So that we're no longer on probation. We're no longer on an if-then basis with God. He came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, so that we might be saved from the law and be brought into the family. There's a lot going on here when we think of Christ dying on the cross. Of course, one of my favorite descriptions of this comes from C.S. Lewis in his book called Miracles. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, which I don't agree with that part. But he says, down to the very roots and seabed of nature. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. I want to make a side note comment here. 
The incarnation of Christ teaches us about the importance of the physical world to God, the importance of the physical nature that humans have and how that is so meaningful and it comes from God. God operates this world through regularity. The regular actions of this physical world are so predictable that we call them laws, laws, and, makes, and it makes science possible, it makes discovery possible. God has wound into the universe certain principles and it is part of our human nature, our God-given human nature, to unwind those things and learn how it works. And because of that, because we're Christians, we believe in the scientific endeavor. It is not an unspiritual thing to separate during the time of an epidemic or a pandemic to fight a virus. And it's a fallacy to fall into magical thinking that just because we're Christians, we're going to be immune from a virus. Jesus was not immune from anything. He wasn't immune from the cross. He wasn't immune from the soldiers that arrested him. Even though he did knock them down before they took him, he still entered into the fallenness of this world. He was not immune to the lash. He was not immune to the spikes. And he wasn't immune to the sun and the thirst and the, and the pain. In fact, he entered into it more deeply than any of us ever will. And he put the whole thing back on his shoulders and walked off in glory. But if there's a lesson that we should learn from Good Friday is that we as Christians are no greater than our master and we are not immune from the brokenness, the sharp edge, the pounding pains of this world. People who say, well, God will protect us from this virus willy-nilly, they still have to go to, they, they still look both ways before they cross the street. They still go to the store to buy food. Why doesn't God just miraculously put food in their bellies as well as antibodies in their blood? Right now, we live under the regularity of a broken world. I have felt and seen God work in this world, but those, those direct motions of miraculous power are rare and they get our attention for a reason because they are rare. But God also works through providence, through the, regular, through, through the regular motions of the physical world that He created, because He loves that too. And even though it's broken, He loves it and wishes to redeem His whole creation, beginning with us. As we prepare our hearts for Easter, let me leave you with Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we say, Amen.